it's a it's a an administration that uh, believes uh, that might makes right internationally and domestically and that um, freedom is for those who have power to do as they will John Jay and his who's our first chief justice said it and I think it would have been a consensus um, in the early years among those who were in power those who own the country ought to run it which is just unbelievable to me <clears throat> and watch um, public funding supporting Contras who are murdering people, destroying villages. Our taxpayers' money, yours and mine, is financing that. It's a violation of international law. We know it. If it wasn't, international law wouldn't be worth anything. <clears throat> it's a violation of U.S. law. And uh, we're leading up to uh, international conflicts that um can crush the human spirit, not just the body, because how do you really live with uh, the deaths that are caused by nuclear war? I don't agree with the professor who wrote that uh, we'd lose uh, maybe 50 to 60 million, but the rest of the society would live normal and happy lives there. Acceptable <laughs> losses, I think they call yeah. it. I believe that we would be safer and that America would be more secure if we cut, and I mean this literally and absolutely, the defense budget by half arbitrarily today. And if we dismantle half of our nuclear weapons arbitrarily and unilaterally today. We had, um, you know, we kidnapped uh, <coughs> Aguinaldo. We killed probably one-sixth of the population of Luzon between uh, the bullets that we fired at their people and the <coughs> dengue fever and other diseases that set in in the aftermath. On the island of Samar, we had General Jacob Smith give an order to kill every male. He was asked uh, what age, and he said 10 years or older, and we had the slaughter of people that make me lie in, in Vietnam, uh, uh, you know, look like... Uh, like nothing happened. Ramsey Clark, one of the great liberal Americans, former attorney general under Lyndon Johnson, and a great fighter for civil rights. He did an interview with us in 1979 and another one just recently, February 1986. We'll see both these interviews tonight on Alternative Views. <laughs> Attorney General Ramsey Clark was in Austin recently to attend the function of the Texas Civil Liberties Union. He just returned from a trip from the Philippines. He'll tell us about this and also about many other things relating to civil liberties and the Reagan administration. 
Also, we'll take a look back at the interview which we did with Ramsey Clark back in November 1979. He talked at great length about how power is used and by whom in the United States. But first, we'll have some news stories. I have an article that goes into some of the causes of homeless, homelessness today. And it starts out by saying that even a discredited Reagan administration study acknowledged that 20% of the occupants of shelters are in family groups and that only 22% of those in shelters are mentally ill. Now, the tragedy of the homeless, the article says, is in fact linked to structural aspects of our economic system and to specific public policies that the current administration is following. And he lists uh, several of these. He says, number one, as a result of 1981 changes in the regulations governing uh, AFDC, which is aids to, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, Half of the working families receiving such assistance lost their eligibility. Another 40% had their benefits reduced. Another factory names, he says, millions of unemployed workers are receiving reduced assistance. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, only 33% of the 9.5 million officially counted as jobless in 83 were collecting unemployment benefits of any kind. And he goes on to say that that's the lowest percentage on record since the introduction of these unemployment compensations. He also cites as a, uh, another factor, cutbacks imposed in 1981 on food stamp and child nutrition programs, expected to total $12 billion by this year, the cutbacks. They forced many families to, quote, unquote, choose homelessness in preference to hunger. And he goes on to say, most welfare grants include totally inadequate allotments for housing. In New York, for instance, welfare rent ceilings remained unchanged from 1975 to 1984 a period of tremendous inflation. In other states, the rent allotment and welfare allowances ranges from 20 to 60% of HUD's locally established fair market rents. So they're only getting a fraction of what they need for rents. Another factor, the Reagan administration has ended most programs of low-rent housing construction and rehabilitation. Furthermore, HUD is systematically diminishing the existing and irreplaceable stock of 1.3 million public housing units by either tearing them down, abandoning them, or selling them to be converted as, to condos. And he says again that rents paid by families in subsidized housing have been raised from 25% to 30% of income. In subsidized housing, the tenants have to pay a certain percentage of, their, of what money they do make. Now, that, that increase will translate to $6 billion going from the pockets of the poor to the government in the years from 1981 to 1986. He says, for many families living on the edge, that small increase can result in voluntary departure or forced eviction. Another factor he cites, he says, every year, some 2.5 million Americans are displaced from their homes. In New York City, half of the almost 500,000 eviction actions in 1983 alone were directed against public assistance recipients, whose next home may have been a city shelter, as he notes. Another factor, he says, according to the Urban Institute, the poorest one-fifth of the nation saw its taxes increase an average of 24% from 1980 to 1984. And that, of course, means less income for the uh, low-income people. And one final factor, he says at the bottom, the problem of homelessness is caused by the loss of tens of thousands of low-rent housing units each year. Urban renewal has destroyed many central city residential hotels, apartments, and rooming houses, and condominium conversions and gentrification which are encouraged by the tax policies that aid real estate developers and the like, they tend to push out the poor. And he makes one final note. He says, 
The homeless are just one step ahead of the pre-homeless. Now, these are the people that are, that are uh, threatened with the prospect of losing their homes. And he defines those as 2.7 million renter households with incomes of less than $3,000 a year. Now, in that case, if you're making $3,000 a year, you have to devote a median of 72% of income to just housing alone. He says the 6% of all homeowners and almost 10% in states of high unemployment who are more than 30 days behind in mortgage payments and the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of doubled up households, people, uh, houses where two different families share it, could also contribute to a massive influx of more homeless people. So I found an article I've been wanting to share with you for about five years. I lost it and only found it the other day. It's an explanation of how we've got to where we are in the housing world. As we all know, the very few of us can afford housing anymore. The percentage has dropped from 66% years ago down to just a, just a handful, a couple of handsful now. People basically, ordinary people can't afford to buy a house anymore. Well, this was not just by accident. What happened was that it's one of the New Deal success stories. As a matter of fact, the New Deal uh, combined a government subsidy and private enterprise to savings and loan institutions to uh, cover otherwise risky long-term fixed-rate home loans. It took the risk out of it. Savings and loans made money. People got their homes. And the percentage of Americans owning homes rose from 44% to 66%. Well, by 1975, inflation was here, and the savings and loans could no longer make money on fixed interest 30-year mortgages. The people had to pick up the tab. So the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and state legislatures obliged by a, a range of variable rate mortgages that rise and fall with inflation. <laughs> fall. Anybody seen any falling? Probably not. And, of course, what happened is that it shifted the burden to the homeowner, not to the savings and loan people, so they couldn't lose. Now, with an effective housing demand of 2.5 million, 2 million housing units in 1980, less than half that number were constructed. And then Reagan slashed the housing subsidies and on the construction of low- and moderate-income housing, and so the construction of this type of housing virtually stopped in the United States and has since then. Now, this is very pleasing to conservative economists and to Reaganites from two aspects. First of all, as some people from Brookings Institute said, the Americans are overhoused. That's their term. We're overhoused. Two-thirds of the nation owning homes is too much. And the key thing is, is that the capital locked up in these houses, in other words, the amount of money that people have in their homes, could better be spent for new factories and be given to the bankers so they can do with it what they want to. There were a lot of quotes along that line. Those people have, Americans have too much wealth locked up in their homes. We want that. <laughs> and so that's what they did. The second aspect is that the Reagan administration wanted, and the financiers, of course, wanted a consolidation of the financial market. So that's why you see so many savings loans being merged with others and other banks taking over savings and loans, more and more control into fewer and fewer hands. So as the In These Times article of 1981 says, the pity is that capitalism's endemic inflation has ravaged the U.S. housing industry and the New Deal public policy that supported, leaving millions of Americans in the lurch. 
the nation of homeowners, as we like to refer to ourselves, is producing a generation of renters permanently cut off from the traditional sources of mortgage finance and leaving it to the elite investors. Now let's have our two interviews with Ramsey Clark. First, the one that was done back in November of 1979. Today you have a political economist who openly say, a man like Robert Heilbronner, who's a, you know, a good man, a, a distinguished scholar, has a terrible problem. He's honest. He writes a book called The Human Prospect, and he says if survival is the question, then we have to ask whether democracy is possible, whether it's too slow, too cumbersome, too indecisive, <laughs> whether we don't need authoritarian decision-making. Of either the left or the right <laughs> persuasion. But you know, of this my persuasion. It's always <laughs> of my persuasion. <laughs> it's the only was, kind that makes this sense. This is the way the Constitution was set up, by reading the Federalist Papers. They were very preoccupied with this, and because they were concerned about the fact that the economic system placed the money and property into the hands of a few, they knew that those who didn't have it would want to get it. And so, in addition to the things you were talking about by limiting voting and participation in government, they continuously mentioned the fact that the government must have in it flaws. It must have flaws so it cannot work efficiently. It cannot respond to any popular will might come along. So, to say that democracy oven by itself is inefficient, I'm not really sure. Maybe it is. But on the other hand, it was designed into the system we have today, and it works very well. It's worked that way to allow the economic system pretty much to work independently or with the benefits of government whenever it wanted. But there were enough flaws so that people could not change the system radically and to, uh, uh, you know, to make the popular will into, you know, popular law, as it would be, for their benefit. Well, I agree that uh, we began, as you say, I think John Jay, and his, who was our first Chief Justice, said it, and I think it would have been a consensus um, in the early years among those who were in power. Those who own the country ought to run it. That's his statement. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I <clears throat> but the, all the checks and balances were uh, a fear not only of um, public opinion, but of government, too. Uh, wealth was afraid of the mob, and it was afraid of authoritarian government. So they're trying to fend off both sides. They'd been through, uh, they had this problem with George III, who they didn't like, and, uh, and he was authoritarian, and then they'd been through the Whiskey Rebellion and Shea and all these things. They didn't like the mob, so they wanted to be protected from each. But I have to disagree when you, when, when you say that uh, democracy has been working very well. We haven't begun to practice democracy well. No, I, We I don't really vote. We don't really participate. If we really participated, we'd be amazed at what would happen because there's a direct correlation between voting and between economic status. The rich vote 90%, the poor vote 30%. Hmm. Uh, the undereducated don't vote. The overeducated or the people who got all those degrees... Uh, are voting, and they have to reflect um, who they are. <laughs> so that's what you do when you vote. And uh, the, the world as they see it, and they can't see or understand or appreciate these other people. And if, that's, if they were voting to serve the others, then that's really uh, 
patronizing when you think about it or paternalistic. I know best what's you know good for these uh, these poor people. But even if we were all voting today, and we're far, far from it, take your last city election, take your last county election. These are people that have enormous power over your immediate life, whether your garbage gets picked up, whether your water supply is good for your children and things like that. But even if we were all voting, as we should, absolutely, this is very important. It can solve many of our problems. Money dominates politics in America. And through politics, government. And so with all of our voting, it's still who's got the paid commercials on TV. Uh, look at the last governor's race in Texas and the multi-million dollar per candidate cost of it. <laughs> and ask yourself how the poor people are represented in that. Now, I'm poor and you're rich. I love my candidate and believe in her uh, effectiveness every bit as much as you love yours and believe in yours. I can't give a cotton-picking dime. I don't have enough money to buy shoes for my kids. You can give money, big money, to your candidate. That's equality. That's not equality. Your candidate's going to win. You're going to have your way. I'm going to be left to struggle on with a government that I didn't uh, choose. The roots of law are power. No question about that. Not principle, power. And the use of law, historically, overwhelmingly, has been um, as a system of power and control. And it's uh, still in this society used overwhelmingly that way. Our prisons are full of poor people. Nobody denies that. This state of Texas, where I was born, like my father before me, got more people in prison than any other state. The United States of America imprisons more people per capita than any Western country. Unless you consider South Africa a Western country, and we've got three southern states that got higher per capita imprisonment rates than South Africa. And they're all poor people. When you go to law school today, you're learning uh, the rules of moneyed might. You're studying contracts. You're studying securities law. You're studying commercial law. The law of property. People with power. Economic power, which is the basic power in society. Their rules. So actually, we still have what John Jay said should be. Those who own it, run it. When you look at the Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, the Council of Foreign Relations, and see that these are the same people who also run the uh, banking system, the multinational corporations, and provide the money in political action committees to have their representatives elected in Congress. It's all one ruling cartel, is it not? Well, they don't think so because uh, their difference is, um, you know, within the faith. <laughs> There are all these little uh, Are they differ sects. as to strategy to rule, or but do they differ as to, uh, you know, fundamental belief systems? No, I think they, they share fundamental belief systems. They're just vying for power within the narrow context of So to of what the, extent are those intramural squabbles even relevant to talk about? Important to them. <laughs> well, I mean, for us, thinking about... <laughs> they won't about solve problems. Okay. No, they won't solve problems. I think the... Um, see, even our foreign policy is clearly dominated by that and it's tragic uh, a, a president like President Carter who comes out with his human rights platforms then has to have his Secretary of State say but 
South Korea is off limits. We don't talk about human rights there, or the Philippines are off limits. Uh, and he calls the Shah of Iran from Camp David uh, the Saturday before the Sunday of the announcement of the Accords. Uh, but the Saturday after the Friday, that's known as Black Friday in Iran, the Friday in which thousands and thousands of people were gunned down in the streets by American-made Huey helicopters with 50 caliber machine guns firing in the crowds. And the streets are still red with blood. And President Carter calls the Shah of Iran and says, we support you, you're right. <laughs> and the reason, of course, is our economic interests, our corporate um, multinational um, oil and other business interests, and that's not um, any basis on which we can hope to survive uh, on this planet. It leads to war. Respect for the rights of others is peace, as Benito Juarez from south of the border tried to tell us. And we ought to have a foreign policy that's based on that and democratic principles rather than economic power. Ramsey, in the book here, The Citizen's Agenda, which um, was perhaps a statement, perhaps a Bible, during your campaign for the U.S. Senate in 76, you talk about a lot of problems here in the United States, call for a great deal of economic and political democracy, talk about who benefits, who is hurt by the system that we have now, the need for greater social services. And piecemeal, they are really substantial. But when you put them all together, if they were ef really effected into law, it would really call for quite a radical restructuring of the country, would it not? Well, uh, you know, people's reaction to the word radical is um, so varied. Most people, if you say something's radical, they don't want to hear any more about it. They Radical is hateful, which is kind of sad for America. <laughs> right. We were supposed to have been... Um, committed to the idea of individual freedom and uh, believe in the possibility of goodness in people and uh, change. And we were looked on as radical when we started this experiment in government. Uh, I, I think that what I called for in that uh, political campaign would require a profound departure from our present um, economic policies. I think it's absolutely essential that we recognize that we build up to crises. Now, historically, we could do that because there was time. Things moved slowly, and usually it'd be one crisis at a time. So the crisis would come along, and we'd have this great flurry of energy finally after a lot of human suffering, and we'd address the crisis. But now we've got, um, we have got uh, a large number of major crises that are building up. Food, energy military weaponry and we can't wait for the energies of the people to suddenly come surging forth uh, there are people starving every day uh, the, the meaning of our present energy policies is disastrous uh, for our children and deadly for our grandchildren and not going to be good for us uh, if we hang around very long and uh, we're leading up to uh, international conflicts that um, can crush the human spirit, not just the body, because how do you really live with uh, the deaths that are caused by nuclear war? I don't agree with uh, a professor who wrote that uh, we'd lose uh, 
maybe 50 to 60 million, but the rest of the society would live normal and happy lives there. <laughs> Acceptable right. losses, I think they call yeah. it. You know, Ramsey, it seems to me that, you know, to draw into sharper focus a lot of what you're saying, I think a lot of what sort of the, th- the threadbare fabric of, of constitutionalism, of limited government, of, of desire of a, of, a, of a government which governs best as governs least, the Jeffersonian ideal, is really irrelevant in a society of tremendous economic concentration of, of, of perils which are not even immediate or directly perceived by people like cancer in the workplace and nuclear power and decisions made in boardrooms that literally mean lives and death to people. And you're identified with an expanded role for government, but today government is under attack by all quarters, by liberals abandoning the ship, becoming fiscal conservatives, uh, spouting the, the sort of doctrine that life is unfair and you can't expect government to solve all our problems and of course the neoconservative movement that see this as the product of inflation etc. Are you out of step or are you ahead of your time? Well I'm out of step <laughs> we'll have to wait to see whether I'm ahead of my time um, I, um, see I begin with the ideal of individual freedom and uh, I don't find it uh, incompatible. Uh, it can't be incompatible with technological society because we're in technological society and we're not uh, going to leave it. And therefore, you begin with the recognition that you have to structure into the new society the opportunity for individual freedom. Now, when you begin to look around, you see that technology dominates our lives, and technology does not make moral judgments. Mm -hmm. It has no capacity for it. Technology is the creation of humankind, and humankind has to control technology for its own good. Technology, in my opinion, uh, sensitively used, can liberate the human condition from its whole history of want. Uh, But we have permitted technology... uh, to fulfill um, Mark Twain's description of civilization, which is the proliferation of unnecessary necessities, things, more things, constantly. Whether you want them or not, they're the things that cause you the anguish. I got to have this new house, I got to have this new car, I got to have this new TV set, whatever it is, things that may have the most confining effect on you as an individual and your individual freedom. Uh, So government, to me, democratic institutions uh, the majority have to control technology through democratic processes and we have to make that our high art and our high skill we also have to recognize that in the economic um, field uh, the frontier is gone the things that Walter Prescott Webb uh, glorified and tell us about uh, have essentially vanished And if you're down and out and living in Central City and can't get a job and don't have any money, uh, your choices are few. You can't gather berries or hunt fish anymore and make out. And therefore, an essential part of uh, of freedom in this new society uh, is the right uh, to an adequate economic base, uh, to money to live. Life is choice, but you can't choose if you don't have the bus fare. You're stuck where you are. I think we have to we have to recognize that we want to cling to the past. Let us return to the past. That'll be progress. But you can't do it. You shouldn't want to. We're just look at the way we ration health. 
How can you tolerate rationing health? The vast majority of the American people cannot afford uh, a protracted illness. They can't pay for it. They're priced out of the market. <laughs> We should be working massively in prevention. We don't have to tolerate this uh, maldistribution of, of health. We can have health for all of our children. Well, we're told that these, these excessive claims on the federal budget by the have-nots are producing inflation. That's what we well, hear in the press today. Uh, <clears throat> the, if you want to know what's producing inflation, it's many things, but the primary thing in the federal budget is the defense budget which is just uh, so inhumanely and irrationally large is to be unimaginable uh, to a Jonathan Swift when he was talking about uh, the Irish eating babies during the famine. He couldn't have dreamed of anything like we're doing. We're putting billions and billions in, and they are absolutely inflationary because when you build a tank, <laughs> consumers don't buy it. Mm -hmm. That means that all the money that went into that tank, all the wages and everything else, then go in to drive prices up for everything else because nobody's buying the tank. Nobody wants one. We don't need them quite yet to ride down 6th Street in Austin safely. The, um, so it's the military budget, which is uh, you know, wildly out of control. We need uh, a drastic cut. I believe that we would be safer and that America would be more secure if we cut, and I mean this literally and absolutely, the defense budget by half arbitrarily today. And if we dismantle half of our nuclear weapons arbitrarily and unilaterally today, and um, the fact that we're unwilling to do that shows how frightened we are and how rationality has abandoned us. Ramsey, in the few moments we have left, let me run a few names by you. This will be my, my uh, gesture to current events or some later events. Let me run the name of Martin Luther King by you. Well, he's a great man, and America will be a great country when he recognizes it. He believed in social change because he hated injustice. And he believed that we could achieve social change without violence. And those are the two great lessons that America has to learn. We glorify the power of violence. We ignore its pity. We have to set violence aside as the ultimate human degradation and learn how to change without using force, which is the negation of freedom. Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was a man of great vision and great moral passion. When he saw poor Chicano child without shoes it caused him personal pain for years and years uh, he loved this country and he wanted to add enormously to the well-being of its people he had a dream that we could abolish poverty that we could be the first society to do it it was a good and noble dream he was a man of character flaws like we all are on the international level, he couldn't see the common humanity of the Vietnamese. And he thought that this country had some right and some imperial power and duty uh, to show other countries how to live their lives. Jimmy. He was a victim of America in thinking that. It was not uh, an individual peculiarity at all. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter is, is a religious man. He's a limited man. He's a technician. He believes in competence. He's not very competent, but he doesn't have great vision. He has no passion for justice. I've not seen him angered by injustice in this society or in others. And I think we need uh, a moral force uh, in the presidency. 
Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy comes from a family that the American people know well. We've lived with that family as we've lived with our next-door neighbors for a generation or more now. We pained in the assassination of the brothers. Ted Kennedy may be the most effective of the brothers. As a senator, in my judgment, he has been the most effective individual in the Senate. I think he could be a very effective president. I think he suffers when others suffers. When he went to Bangladesh and saw poverty there, it hurt him just as rural poverty in Mississippi hurt Bob Kennedy. Ramsey Clark. Well, I'm a lawyer a long way from home who still believes an individual can make a difference and always will. I'll keep trying. Thank you, Ramsey Clark. Well, that was November of 1979. Now it's February 1986, and Ramsey Clark is back with us. We're privileged to have with us tonight former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, who's here in Austin, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Texas Civil Liberties Union. Ramsey's giving the keynote address tonight that's going to honor the Texas Observer and the Judge William Wayne Justice of Texas for their work on behalf of civil liberties. Ramsey has been active in the last several decades on international human rights and civil liberties, and we're very happy to have you with us tonight. Good to be with you. Thank you. Can we begin by talking about your appraisal of the situation of civil liberties under the Reagan administration? Well, the Reagan administration has no respect <coughs> for the Bill of Rights. Um, worse than that, it seems to enjoy demeaning the Bill of Rights uh, in an outright fashion. The, <coughs> the attitude that it has on, on key provisions, search and seizure, right to counsel, I mean, destroying the national legal defenders system or seeking to really by cutting back on funding its attitude toward First Amendment uh, rights its insensitivity to separation of church and state <coughs> freedom of press and speech it, it's a it's a an administration that uh, believes uh, that might makes right internationally and domestically and that um, freedom is for those who have power to do as they will as distinguished from <clears throat> an inherent uh, inalienable right in individuals uh, rich or poor do you find this much different from say uh, the Nixon administration which also carried out a lot of attacks on civil liberties well it's it's a matter of degree. <clears throat> it's a later time. Um, it's insecurity that causes people to attack the idea of freedom. If everybody felt fine, you wouldn't bother about it, you know. <clears throat> and the fact is that uh, our insecurity has grown. During the Nixon administration, we had a much stronger sense of who we were and what was right. The, we were opposing um, the war in Vietnam. We had the will when we thought that he had done wrong to, um, if not impeach him, force his um, resignation. Uh, but now we're much later along in the this 
torrent of history, and um, we're terribly insecure. We see violence in our cities. We see <coughs> war in Central America and Southeast Asia and Southern <coughs> Africa and the Middle East, and, um, and we see uh, old and stable um, surrogate dictatorships like uh, the Philippines uh, slipping away, and it frightens us, and we see uh, uh, baby Doc Duvalier, who we've always um, supported as we did his father, uh, leave suddenly and our insecurity grows. We see this staggering uh, deficit <coughs> in our expenditures that have uh, mortgaged future generations uh, of Americans and made um, uh, effective, adequate <coughs> social service programs through government uh, extremely difficult, if possible at all, for the next year. We see the arms race proliferating, and we're building three to five nuclear warheads a day, and at a time like that, um, uh, <coughs> liberty um, can become a dirty word. We're an insecure people, and, and Reagan um, uh, believes that uh, might makes right, and the people seem to be willing to go along with it to a greater degree than is healthy for those who want to be free. Ransom, you, think, uh, you were Attorney General under the Johnson administration. What is your opinion of Ed Meese as Attorney General under Reagan? <coughs> well, I suppose uh, courtesy would indicate I shouldn't comment, <laughs> but um, you have a duty to you don't abandon um, uh, principles out of uh, <coughs> loyalty to an office. And I have to say that I think he's uh, an absolute disaster, you know. I mean, he's insensitive, uh, as we've already said, to um, civil liberties, which um, are the spirit of this country. They're, as G.K. Chesterton said, the idea upon which this nation <coughs> was founded uh, the rule of law is a matter of indifference to him, as you see personally in his life before he became attorney general, and um, as you see in the way he conducts uh, the office. He believes, as does President Reagan, in um, the absolute right of moneyed might. He won't enforce the antitrust laws. and right. <clears throat> The meaning of that in our society is just staggering. I mean, one of our great vitalities, I think, has been the diversity of our economy that gave so many people so much opportunity and the concentration of economic power that we've seen um, during their period will affect us. How you come out of it is difficult to see without some radical uh, legal effort because once, you've <clears throat> once you have concentrated economic power as they have in multinational corporations, it's very difficult to liberate yourself from that uh, except by law. To do it by economics is extremely difficult. You can't buck those big outfits very well, particularly when no one will enforce the antitrust laws. So I think it's um, it's a sad time uh, for the rule of law in the federal government. Do you think that the mass media are to blame quite a bit for the condition you were talking about a while ago about the country being insecure and being scared, that <clears throat> Reagan and the administration are whipping up the red scare bit that we had back in the... Uh, 50s and on, and they have put everything in an East-West context. The Russians are the, the Russians are the, constitute the evil empire, and anybody who 
does not go along with what they want to, or communist or terrorist, the new buzzword. But the media don't seem to be calling their hand on it. They just seem to parrot what the administration is saying, and that's it. <clears throat> well, there's several things that have to be observed, and it's very important for us to <clears throat> do this, to analyze uh, the role of media, because it is so powerful, and it is so concentrated, and it uh, is so inextricably intertwined with the power in our society. Uh, it depends upon uh, enormous expenditures by private industry to finance it. I mean, the cost of uh, advertisements are just staggering there, and only the very wealthy corporations can really get into national advertising, for instance. <clears throat> it, it identifies with, uh, very harmoniously, um, um, the power of government. Uh, we always thought, you remember, that <clears throat> a free press was essential as a, as a check on government. But our press has become overwhelmingly an extension of government. If you take just reporting about things like the arms race, which I think is the greatest crime against humanity in history, or about activities of our military all over the world, <clears throat> you look at it and you see that 97, whatever percent it is, nearly all of the information is spoon-fed to the press. Here, eat this and regurgitate it to the, uh, to the public. <clears throat> First, if you don't take it from them, uh, you don't get it. <laughs> And if you insult them or offend them in some way, they won't give it to you. So you become dependent upon them. Uh, their their um, public relations uh, manpower so far exceeds uh, the poor capacity of all the media put together. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of people against thousands of people. <clears throat> that uh, they're they're very much dependent, and, and they'll you know they'll pick little controversies, little differences, uh, but they don't. Uh, they're not willing to take. I mean, they sit back, uh, which is just unbelievable to me, <clears throat> and watch um, uh, public funding supporting Contras who are murdering people, destroying villages. Our taxpayers' money, yours and mine, is financing that. It's a violation of international law. We know it. If it wasn't, international law wouldn't be worth anything. <clears throat> it's a violation of U.S. law. Uh, it's been a crime since 1795 to uh, spend money and cause people to <clears throat> create violence for the purpose of overthrowing a foreign government anywhere, whether you like the government or not. And we know it's a violation of our laws. It's a violation of Nicaraguan laws, which condemn murder and rape <laughs> and the destruction of villages. And the press, uh, well, they're interested in what the vote may be. You get practically no criticism of it. They watch... Um, this enormous uh, commitment to, to military might when we're cutting back on every kind of social program that the people need. And, uh, you know, they're interested in whether <coughs> Graham Redmond may be unconstitutional or something like that because it'll create problems, but they don't seem to recognize the meaning of it, that what we're doing to our society. When they talk about the Reagan revolution and he, he talks about it, they aren't kidding. Well, it's a, it's, it's a current of time, too. It's interesting how, you know, Nixon opens China, and you could say, wow, that's terrific. And then you realize that uh, it was a, an event that was uh, becoming un unavoidable, inescapable, <clears throat> and that he did it for the wrong reasons. Uh, it was the China card. It was, a, it was a ploy against the Soviet Union. You put, uh, at that time, 
950 million uh, Chinese on the Russian border and uh, keep them in their place. But uh, another point about the press that we have to consider is that it tends to feed the American people what they want. That's a sadder comment and a much more difficult problem. Uh, we have so long glorified the power of violence. <clears throat> we have so uh, committed ourselves to material things as uh, the most important aspect of life, property. <clears throat> and um, television um, really gives us what we want. In but television also produces these wants and desires on part of the public. The amount of advertising helps produce the desire for consumer goods and the amount of violence <laughs> on television entertainment reproduces people's admiration of power in foreign policy, yeah. for instance. I would qualify it a little bit. I, I often think how sad it is that a young family will set their child, maybe 18 months old, in front of a television where it will see toy tanks <clears throat> for sale. And they will feel they're good parents that they're providing for their child if they can get down to the toy store quicker than anybody else in the neighborhood and get one of those tanks for their child and their child will be gratified. But before that, <clears throat> we had created a, a condition where we loved things. And if that condition hadn't existed, <laughs> a television showing that thing wouldn't have caused uh, the child or the family to immediately want it. Uh, we have come to find our pleasure in life with getting things, you know, a new refrigerator or a new hi-fi set or a new automobile or a new fancy set of clothes or whatever it is. Uh, and as long as we have the expectation of getting something like that pretty soon, uh, we're going to be reasonably happy. And that's uh, that's uh, the most dangerous thing, you know, how we're going to have a billion more people born on this earth and alive on this earth in the next 10 years, and three-fourths are going to be desperately poor. We saw, you know, five million infants uh, die of starvation in 1984, according to the World Health Organization. Infants uh, die of starvation. <clears throat> and we're more interested in things like um, uh, a man rocket into space. What, kind, what would you think of a parent who had an infant starving in a crib? and were spending their time out in some uh, laboratory busily working on going to the moon or something like that, you'd think they were absolutely inhumane. It lost all sense of proportion and value. Uh, I don't say we can save everybody on Earth. Uh, I say we can't police them, but I say we have a moral responsibility to try to reach out and help others help themselves. And if we don't, then all the tensions we now see are merely prologue. Uh, the wildest time is yet to be. And you spent a lot of time in third world countries yourself and saw a lot of the suffering and poverty. Most recently you've been in the Philippines during the time they were having the election. Can you give us your reflections on this event? Well, the important things are to remember a little bit about history. Um, you know, we sent Admiral Dewey into <clears throat> Manila Bay when uh, President McKinley didn't even know where the Philippines was. Uh, but he had been stationed in Hong Kong before the Maine was blown up in uh, Havana Harbor because we thought we might be able to pick off the Philippines. We wanted something out there. And uh, after that, it went downhill. We had um, 
you know, we kidnapped uh, <coughs> Aguinaldo. We killed probably one-sixth of the population of Luzon between uh, the bullets that we fired at their people and the <coughs> dengue fever and other diseases that set in in the aftermath. On the island of Samar, we had General Jacob Smith give an order to kill every male. He was asked uh, what age, and he said 10 years or older. And we had the slaughter of people that make me lie in, in Vietnam, uh, you know, look like, uh, like nothing happened. Um, and when, <clears throat> when Marcos uh, came along, uh, we backed his martial law. They had a vital democracy. <clears throat> From September 1972 until this date, they have lived under martial law in fear. You wonder why the people in Haiti just go out of their heads all of a sudden when one man leaves the country, so to speak. Uh, and it's because of the, the incredible fear, and not an unwarranted fear, he'll kill you. And then we forced an election, and we forced an election basically in my judgment, and I think history will bear it out, because Marcos was getting too unpopular in the United States, and we weren't going to be able to expend the monies we need to expend for capital improvements at Subic and uh, Subic uh, Naval Station and, uh, and Clark Air Force Base. And if we, unless we could popularize him by an election, and he thought he could win, and he still thinks he can win, and uh, in my judgment, uh, he, he won't be counted out. He, he's never been willing to be counted out. He'll do what he has to do. Benino Aquino's feet won't touch the Philippine soil alive. And uh, that's a pretty extraordinary uh, mentality. Uh, so now we see people desperately hoping for something uh, different, but it has to come in the, in the cruelest form. A woman who, in my judgment, and I've known her um, both before and after the murder of her husband, has suffered so much that nothing but the truth matters anymore. You know, we come to that. Who's absolutely unafraid. You can say what you want to, but you have to respect the courage of that woman. I've known widows from the Kennedy widows and Mrs. King and <clears throat> Mrs. Allende and uh, Mrs. Letelier and a good many others. This woman has remarkable courage. How she gets out there day after day, speaking constantly all through the campaign, realizing how almost hopeless it is if she wins, how does she govern it? And uh, how can she hope to win uh, with a person like Marcos in there? But uh, whatever else it does, the election is going to rapidly accelerate history in the Philippines. It's going to compact it, and there's going to be change quickly. And the United States will try to manipulate change into channels that are satisfactory to it, which will be a new Marcos, untainted and uh, unburdened by uh, the history of... Uh, <coughs> of the Marcos experience since uh, 1965. I understand, though, that Mrs. Aquino comes from the same oligarchy, the same small number of families that has been running the Philippines since independence. <clears throat> and so we really couldn't expect too much of a change, except perhaps in civil liberties uh, around the country. We couldn't, really couldn't expect any basic economic change or exploitation by multinational corporations, which has caused the large insurgency mm -hmm against the government right now. Is well, that an evaluation I, you share, or do you...? Uh, I would, uh, you know, I, I think that that's um, in the main incontestable as a, as a statement of fact. 
She and her husband came from Tarlac. There you see evidence of his family name and her family name uh, all over the place. I went up there because it's, it's a critical place to examine at this time. It's right by Clark Air Force Base, and that tells you that the United States of America is very concerned that that area be stable. It's also an area that, that Marcos has concentrated on for a long time. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I think it's a little, you know, life is always a little more complex than that. Uh, even within the oligarchy, there are differences. Mm -hmm. And uh, her willingness to use military power, um, and this is what worries the Reagan administration, can't be compared with his willingness to use military power. He's unafraid to kill a lot of people. And she's unwilling to kill a lot of people. You can't brush that aside. That mm -hmm. makes a difference in human terms. Uh, she knows uh, the, the horror of prison life. Her husband um, was on death row in the Philippines for a totally fabricated matter. He had absolutely nothing to do with any crime, and the people of the Philippines have always known that, which is a crushing thing. And yet here he is convicted of it by a fraudulent uh, court operation, just as they've had the fraudulent operation on how he got killed. He didn't trip coming down those steps. Somebody <laughs> didn't want his feet to touch the ground. And whether he gave that order, Marcos, or whether people just knew that that's how he felt, uh, he is responsible in my judgment for it. Uh, just as William O. Douglas said that Jack Kennedy was responsible for Diem's murder because certainly he didn't order it, we hope, but uh, uh, he knew that there was a great risk and he didn't take the precautions to prevent it. <clears throat> the um, She also wants uh, to reach out. I met with uh, former President Magapagal, called The Incorruptible, in his, uh, <clears throat> one, of his, one of the biographies of him. He pointed out that, you know, they've had successive waves of, um, of, of political violence there, but that for a good 10 years um, in the 60s, uh, there was no organized uh, guerrilla opposition that came back in, and they had a major land redistribution program going on, and it was making a big difference. It began uh, before his administration, Marco Pagals, but he accelerated it uh, rapidly. <clears throat> um, by 1969, though, uh, the New People's Army was um, underway, and uh, as everyone there who watches the scene would tell you, I think, Marcos has been their greatest recruiter. He's a very polarizing person. Uh, Corazon Aquino is a person who has, um, has touched the hearts of millions of people. They share her suffering, and they realize that she has suffered even more than they. And therefore, you go to a, to a, <clears throat> a rally that she was holding, and, and tens of thousands of people who haven't come out or expressed themselves openly on a matter like that, uh, many in their lifetimes, because uh, Marcos has been around that long. Uh, and, they, and they are almost delirious with, uh, with their emotional uh, excitement about hope and opportunity for the future. Now, I'm not saying she can govern. I think it's uh, once he's gone, and he will go pretty soon. Whether she gets a chance or not, I don't know. I think... Uh, it's unlikely that history will give her that opportunity. But if she gets a chance, I think she will be uh, a, uh, a good force, and I think she will understand um, uh, the plight of the poor in a way that, uh, that Marcos hasn't. 
but that she comes from landed aristocracy uh, is unquestionable. She does, as did Benino Aquino. Ramsey, we promised you that we wouldn't take away too much of your time so you can join the people at the reception of the Texas Civil Liberties Union. Okay. I'd like to ask you one last thing. That our previous program, which we did with you several years ago, we asked you to have to give us a little kind of a capsule opinion of different people, and you talked about oh, <coughs> Jimmy Carter and Martin Luther King and John Kennedy and some other people. What's your evaluation of Ronald Reagan? Well, I, I guess I think that Ronald Reagan is um, an American tragedy, that he um, uh, he brings out the worst in us, which is, you know, all you can really do for others is affect them in terms of their their character. You can bring out the worst or the best. He appeals to our materialism. He relishes it, loves it as an end in itself. <clears throat> he appeals uh, to the glorification of um, the power of violence. He uses it. He'll smash little Grenada, <clears throat> give out 8,000 medals when there weren't 8,000 people on the island, kill more people on Grenada in three days uh, than we lost in World War II on two fronts in proportion to population. I mean, we're just talking about maybe 200 people down there, but they're, you know, out of... 95 to 105,000. That's how it, that's how it measures out. A little place like that, everybody knew someone who was killed, and uh, probably a, a very large proportion of the island was related to someone that was killed. And senseless killing. A Navy jet makes a mistake, launches a couple of rockets at a at a mental hospital, and kills 17 people just like that. And we don't even say we're sorry. I got there three days after that place was hit, and and the um, Patients were digging out their own dead. Nobody had come up there to even help them. I mean, there are tanks and brawny American men all over the island with bulldozers and everything. Nobody's helping them. They just got in the way of a rocket. Too bad for them. He loved that. Standing tall again. America standing tall. Yeah. Again. The big fist. And that's Alternative Views for this evening. We have a lot of people to thank. David Galasich, our camera person, Judy Burton, who is on audio, and Gary LaMarche of the Texas Civil Liberties Union, who arranged our interview with Ramsey Clark. For our news section, our camera person was Eric Eubank, and our audio man was Kevin L. West. Naturally, we want to thank Austin Community Television, all the people there who helped make our program possible as well. Alternative Views is a production of the Alternative Information Network, P.O. Box 7279, Austin, Texas, 78713. Alternative Views has expanded so much in the past couple of years, now being shown in around 40 cities and in two and a half million households. Well, it's a lot of work, and if you'd like to help us out, we'd be glad to have you. Students, particularly, can sometime arrange to get college credit for working with Alternative Views. So if you'd like to do this, contact us at this address. Good night. <laughs>